Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. This is your host, John Donatich. I'm director of Yale University Press. And today I'm speaking with Jess Braven, a Supreme Court correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, The Terror Courts, Rough Justice at Guantanamo Bay, the first inside account of America's continuing legal experiment at Guantanamo Bay. Jess, welcome to the Yale Press Podcast. Great to be here, John. And congratulations on the, the splendid reviews that the book has been getting. A lot of people have you know, called it an important moral document and uh, compelling readers uh, that they have to get a copy and, and read the book now. Read it now, 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 I think is, was what The Atlantic called it. So congratulations on all that. Well, thank you. Thank you. In writing the book, you must have faced some challenges in interviewing your subjects and acquiring the information uh, to write the terror courts. Were their responses in any way uh, self-censored for fear of later repercussions? And if that was the case, how did you go about trying to overcome that difficulty? Well, part of it is because I've been covering this issue for so long, uh, more than 10 years now, that you build up uh, sort of a, a, a whole reservoir of people over the years who uh, I think uh, gain some, some confidence in, in a journalist's work as they sort of see it uh, unfold. So so part of it is that by being such an uh, inefficient writer when it came to producing this manuscript, it perhaps benefited in some way by, by giving me more access to people who were maybe more comfortable that they'd be treated fairly and that the concerns they might have would be Reflected, uh, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a fair way. Um, the, uh, it, you know, there are some some sources in this book are, are quite clearly uh, on the record. Others are not mentioned uh, at all, and I have to say that that is one of the the uh, uh, benefits, or at least distinctions, of the the book form as opposed to the newspaper form, where mm-hmm. there are different uh, conceptions, uh, both of what the, the you know the, the role the writer plays in pulling. Uh, facts and a story together, and the uh, sort of technical requirements of sourcing. So, in a, in a way, I had uh, I was able to go in much greater depth with certain sources uh, with uh, in writing this book than I could in in the newspaper. Um, yes, there are uh, always uh, issues of self censorship, and maybe even more significantly, there's issues of uh, self-servingness. I mean, naturally, everyone is self-serving to a degree or another. Uh, and uh, one question for me was always trying to figure out how accurate uh, was what I was being told and what was being uh, uh, left out. But uh, but fortunately, having been on it for a long time and, and, and met lots of people in all sides of these issues, uh, I was able to sort of get, I think, the context to find out what checked out and, and what didn't. Mm. I like that distinction between people who are maybe not ready or versus people who are almost too ready uh, mm-hmm. to speak with you. Uh, I also like you know what you said about uh, long form uh, relationship and and, and long form research and, and the day in in our digital age. I mean the, these are endangered things, but uh, uh, we're doing our best to kind of um, make sure that long research uh, finds its way into books. Did you like writing the book? Was it an interesting uh, versus the sort of uh, newspaper incremental reporting, putting it into a, a, a long perspective. Was that a useful thing for you? Well, I have to say, like like pretty much all other writers, I'm, I'm with Dorothy Parker on this, um, preferring uh, having written to, to writing. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, yes, I did. I mean, I liked being able to, <coughs> oh, excuse me, I like being able to introduce readers to characters who I may have mentioned in uh, passing in newspaper stories, but 
uh, go in, in much more depth about who they are and where they came from and uh, what their motivations are to, to treat them as, as you know, full-dimensional, 360-degree uh, people as opposed to, to just um, uh, sort of reference points for a, a particular uh, position or, 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 or argument. Uh, and so uh, that was, was really gratifying because it is a frustration of the newspaper form in that you learn uh, a lot more than you can ever put into a story because brevity, even, our, even in a longer uh, piece for, for our paper, uh, brevity is really prized, and it's what readers expect, and it's what why they you know why they read the newspaper, uh, you know. But uh, but uh, you know if you want more than that, you have to really turn to a book uh, to 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 get into something with that sort of intimacy and that sort of depth. So uh, yes, I did. I mean, I felt like like so much of what I was experiencing and seeing and learning was being lost uh, to to the extent that I couldn't really share it with readers, and this was a way. Uh, to do it and to and to, and to really put uh, put uh, not just an idea and issues in um, in in the in the right framework, but but also people because you know people are what almost every uh, every uh, uh, issue comes down to. Mm. Well, there are really compelling character studies um, in in the book, but uh, you know back to the historical aspect of it for a minute. Uh, Guantanamo is not the first military tribunal to gain international attention, and you even bring in the, the Nuremberg trials as, as in one of the book chapters. How do the Guantanamo commissions compare to previous military tribunals? They are vastly different. I mean, they have uh, the same, some of the same nomenclature, uh, but when you go beyond that, uh, there are so many elements that really make this uh, experiment uh, one of a kind, and, and really not related to the, the military commissions or tribunals we've had in the past. Uh, and on the, the very, uh, you know, the very uh, obvious what difference is this. All the other ones, including the Nuremberg Tribunal, the famous uh, international military tribunal after World War II, were ad hoc uh, temporary uh, uh, forums. They were created to deal with an exigency in the battlefield or uh, or immediately after uh, a war ended and, and to, to mop up uh, the, the aftermath. Um, the military commissions that, uh, that I write about in the terror courts that, that began with, uh, with President Bush's uh, signature in November 2001, those were conceived to be permanent, uh, that they would be an everlasting uh, element of American military power uh, responding to the... Uh, the, uh, the, the threat of international terrorist groups. And that's something that's really uh, wholly unprecedented. Uh, military commissions or military tribunals were ad hoc courts. Uh, even though the United States held hundreds of them uh, after World War II uh, for lower-level uh, German and Japanese uh, officials and uh, collaborators, uh, they wrapped them up by the end of the 1940s, and they shut them down, and we didn't see them since. In theory, they could have been resurrected under those terms as well in the current conflict, but the Bush administration didn't want to do it that way, and the Obama administration uh, seconded that judgment by, uh, by its own actions uh, and instead wanted to create something that was really more in the control of uh, political officials and the, the highest uh, you know, uh, 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 offices in the United States instead of the sort of thing run by field commanders as, as part of their military duties 
you know, in, in an overseas theater, which is the way it was generally done in the past. Hmm. And is that why the administration also chose not to try the detainees in, in civilian courts in the U.S.? Well, they have chosen to try some detainees. Uh, at least they tried one who they moved from Guantanamo to New York for trial. Uh, and newer uh, people they've captured, they've, everyone they've, that uh, has been captured uh, uh, under the Obama administration and selected for a trial has gone to a federal court. The military commissions that exist are really dealing with the, the, uh, the leftovers from, from the Bush era. Uh, they have not assigned any new cases to military commissions. But I think the, the, the reason that the, the, uh, you know, the 9-11 defendants, the, the five men who have been charged with orchestrating the 9-11 attacks are currently before military commission uh, is a purely uh, a political decision. Mm. Um, the, uh, the Attorney General, uh, Eric Holder, decided that they should be tried in federal court, and he made that decision uh, for a number of reasons. One was uh, he learned a bit about the way that the military commission's project had been operating and had uh, doubts about its, its uh, abilities, and he had advice from his own criminal division, the uh, you know the professional prosecutors, that the case would be a very clear and, and easy one to present in, in federal court, uh, plus a, a general preference for, for federal court's established uh, justice system as opposed to uh, an untried uh, experimental uh, parallel system. But there was a uh, major political backlash from, uh, led by initially by, by Republicans, uh, joined by, by some Democrats later, uh, that made this decision out to be uh, a threat to public safety and uh, something that would undermine the, the posture of the United States as, uh, as engaged in a war against terrorists. So it was really a purely political decision to sort of bow to this pressure uh, to return this uh, proceeding to a military commission rather than proceed in, in, in federal court. Uh, and and I think one of the one of the many many things that are kind of uh, surprising when you get into this this whole uh, issue of military commissions is how, uh, how how a lot of presumptions are backwards. It's not so much that military commissions w- were necessary in order to deal with uh, notorious defendants uh, such as uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the, the four other men charged with the 9/11 attacks, and that the current justice system couldn't handle them, so they needed to make something new. It's actually the other way around. We had the attorney general decide that the current justice system could handle them. Instead, uh, it was uh, one of the commission's big advocates, Senator Lindsey Graham, who told me that, uh, in effect, you needed to put the 9-11 defendants on trial by military commission in order to justify the existence of military commissions. Because Mm -hmm. if you didn't put them in front of a military commission, why put anybody uh, in front of them? So in, in a sense... Uh, justice in that case has been delayed uh, in order to, uh, I guess, uh, add to the credibility of the military commission by giving them marquee-level defendants to uh, to prosecute. Fascinating, and I think the the rhetoric of of the war on terror throws you know a big shadow. And uh, I wonder if um, some of the, 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 the troubling behavior, um, disrespectful and even borderline inhumane behavior of uh, interrogators and administrators at Guantanamo toward the detainees, do you think some of these people are going to be subject to trial in the near future? Or can there, if not, can anything be done to uh, influence their behavior? The Americans who uh, uh, allegedly abused detainees, you mean? You yeah. Mean them? Yep. Well, the one... There have been some uh, prosecutions of, of low-level 
soldiers uh, for abusing detainees in custody. But those were you'd have to were would be unauthorized abuse of of detainees, such as the Abu Ghraib uh, uh, incidents, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in 2000, uh, which were disclosed in, in 2004. Uh, but in terms of the people who were authorized to conduct interrogations and who uh, used the the waterboard and and many other uh, brutal tactics, um, the, I uh, it, it is it's actually quite puzzling to me because the many things uh, you know there are crime there are laws against torture there are international conventions against it and we have official pronouncements. Uh, by government authorities, including uh, a Bush administration official in charge of military commissions who said one detainee was tortured, uh, conclusions by some of the military officers uh, who are characters in the book that potential defendants had been tortured by their interrogators. So there seems to be quite strong evidence that torture was actually committed, and torture is a crime, and following orders is not a defense against that crime. Uh, and there would be a very, very clear trail of evidence because there is lots and lots of documentary records in the government's own possession detailing who did what, when, where, how, and why. Uh, so, you know, if, if if this was just any old kind of case, the amount of evidence suggesting probable cause to believe a crime was committed looks fairly uh, significant. But there's been, from what I can tell, zero effort to uh, initiate any kind of uh, grand jury proceeding or investigation or anything into these well-documented cases of uh, abusive treatment, uh, and I think that again is a political decision. It's a it's it's a it's a political decision that says, well, you know, these defendants, these prisoners, uh, what happened to them just it just doesn't really matter. I mean, it doesn't matter in the sense that we hold people criminally accountable for it and present the evidence in court and let a jury decide whether or not a crime was committed. Uh, the, the feeling in, in the Obama and Bush administrations is that it seems to implicate such close association with the White House that they just don't want to, you know, they're, they're just not going to put any resources in that. They're not even going to investigate it. Mm-hmm. But what do you think now um, with the hunger strikes getting more attention? At what point do you think Guantanamo will be an issue that Congress has no choice but to address? And, and, and will there be any kind of sustained public outcry against what, uh, what's happening? Well, there's no public outcry against what's happening there in terms of the, that I can tell. I mean, there are certainly some people who have been concerned about it, but it's not uh, an issue that really motivates uh, a lot, you know, sort of mass uh, uh, attention uh, in the United States uh, that that I've seen certainly. Uh, I think that you know, if the Congress remains as it is now, uh, divided, uh, partisan control of the two chambers, and uh, really uh, no tremendous, uh, no no constituency for um, uh, addressing Guantanamo. It's hard to imagine much happening. From from Capitol Hill, I think that the the uh, the initiative uh, lies almost completely with President Obama, and uh, in his first term, he was willing to expend apparently zero of what they call political capital towards his uh, campaign promise of closing Guantanamo and uh, you know, significantly altering the the uh, the way that uh, that military trials worked well I mean he did alter the way military trials uh, work on paper I have to say that I mean he did sponsor legislation that did 
uh, afford defendants uh, some greater protections than they had previously. But uh, in terms of closing the place and just sort of, you know, closing the the, the book on on this uh, post 9/11 uh, uh, experiment in parallel justice, no, he hasn't really done anything to accomplish that uh, after discovering there was some political price to pay for trying back in 2009. To me, what, what I would suspect is that the, the, the impetus that, that President Obama will face will be one that is within his own, his own mind. I mean, as, as the, the day of the opening of his own presidential library approaches after he leaves mm-hmm. office, uh, he's going to have to wonder if he wants to have a, a sort of a wing of uh, broken promises that uh, centrally features uh, Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will be something that would remain uh, you know, part of his legacy, uh, one, uh, both a practical one, a symbolic one, and a legal one. And so I think it really will have to become a, a very personal decision for the president to decide how important is it to him to clean up this mess that he inherited uh, is it significant? Is it something he he wants to be able to leave office saying, uh, you know, done that, or or is he or is it not important enough compared to all his other uh, challenges that's simply not worth uh, the, the effort, and he's willing to, you know, take the demerits for for leaving it as it is uh, and leaving it to to some some successor to to address. Yeah, he did say it's not sustainable, which was a curious choice of words. Uh, because it, it precisely uh, verifies what you're saying that you know it's all an, an issue of, of 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 timing for him. Why do you think the the, uh, the 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 public has lost so much interest in it? Well, one because you know the the I think while Guantanamo has been a very negative symbol overseas, I don't know that it's ever galvanized uh, you know majority of Americans to 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 view it with. With outrage, and, and and understandably, you know, people in this country, which which was attacked, uh, would be conflicted. On the one hand, they don't, uh, you know, I don't think Americans are uh, interested in in vengeance and maltreatment by by any stretch of the imagination. On the other hand, when the government endeavors to uh, and and says that it's going after the you know the people who attacked us and locking them up in a place where they can't get us, well, that's you know hard to be against that. Uh, you have to go a bit deeper and look into what's really going on there uh, to to get uh, a sense of it, and and the issues there are are complicated. I mean, what do you do when you have, for instance, uh, a detainee who, uh, and this is not, you know, there, there are all kinds of detainees there, ones who are you know held in error, ones who maybe are just not that you know significant figures that would you know who could really be any kind of threat to the United States, others who are you know avowed enemies of America. You know, there's a whole range, but. But, you know, let's say you have a, a detainee who you can't prove they ever did anything uh, violent against any American, and yet they say, if you let me out of here, I'm, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and attack Americans, right? Let's say you have that kind of person, right? Well, in, a, in, in the United States, that's saying that they might do something bad in the future. That's not grounds to hold someone. I mean, you can't uh, hold someone prospectively or preventatively, um, but in... You know, armed conflict. You, you you can do that. Uh, I mean, I think it's I think it is it is a it's 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 a difficult issue for Americans to get their minds around, and it's easier just to sort of say, well, those people are put away, and I don't have to think about it. Uh, but one thing that I think uh, uh, Americans really should be more concerned about, even if they don't care that much about the 166 men or so who are still held there, is think about how this really tiny group of detainees 
and their fate has so hijacked the attention of the U.S. government and the national security apparatus and the legal institutions that this, you know, there are millions of people in American prisons. You know, there are still tens of thousands of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Uh, there have been hundreds of thousands who have served there. There are, all, there, are, there are, you know, by looking at the scale of things that matter to U.S. national security and then seeing this really infinitesimal number of people and the amount of attention that they command from the highest levels of the U.S. government and the huge cost associated with continuing this uh, detention uh, regime there, that should be a concern. And it's interesting to me that it's really not even in that very, you know, bottom line, you know, unemotional mm. uh, uh, way of looking at things hasn't really con- seemed to have concerned uh, the Congress or, or the public very much. It's, it's kind of a, a, a puzzle, yeah. uh, but it certainly does concern, a, you know, a subset of people, and, and those are the ones who, who we talk about uh, in, in the book. Right. You've been, as you said, covering this story for uh, some 10 years. Uh, what, what was your experience when you first visited Guantanamo Bay, and how, how does it feel now? How different is it when you visit now? Well, it was, it was very much an, an ad hoc thing when I first went there in January 2002. I had to uh, take three different planes to get to... Uh, um, to, to get there, I ended up having to like sleep in the parking lot at a naval base at Puerto Rico before getting on a military shuttle that uh, took me to Guantanamo Bay, and uh, and I was there and I saw um, prisoners offloaded uh, from a military transport. It wasn't the it wasn't the uh, the first group of prisoners, but maybe the second or third, uh, and I saw this whole kind of operation with the plane coming, circling, landing, and uh, this massive military force surrounding the plane in case there were any escapes and then the you know the uh, the cargo hold uh, opens up in the, in the rear of the plane and uh, uh, it, it was it was interesting you could it was almost as if a uh, a hierarchy uh, of, of who gets off first was shown first they took off some military equipment <laughs> then they offloaded the latrines and last they took off these uh, detainees wow. who were in uh, you know in the famous orange jumpsuits but they also had on uh, blindfolds and uh, hats and earmuffs and gloves, basically as much sensory deprivation as you could uh, as you could arrange. Uh, and then some of them had been drugged on the plane as well. And each was held, uh, one arm, uh, you know, held by a, a soldier. And they were, you know, pulled off the plane and checked off a list and put on a uh, school bus with blacked out windows. And then that bus was driven onto a ferry and the ferry was taken to the other side of, of Guantanamo Bay. And I got to follow along with this. And uh, it was really remarkable to see this whole uh, procedure uh, underway, and at that time, the military was, you know, more uh, transparent than I had expected. I mean, not only did we get to watch this whole sort of processing uh, go uh, underway, but the they demonstrated for reporters there all the different things they did, like how they would restrain someone and how they do this, and how they do that, and. Uh, it was interesting to me because they, they it seemed like they were trying to show that they are following regular kind of prison type detention procedures uh, and that weekend while I was there was the same weekend that those famous pictures of the kneeling uh, blindfolded detainees were published uh, first in the British press and there was an outcry in the in the UK and, and elsewhere actually those pictures were taken by by the Pentagon itself and by, by Navy uh, photographers and, and released as part of the government's what seemed to me the government's effort to be <laughs> fairly forthcoming about how they were handling the prisoners but 
uh, it was, uh, it, it, and that's what it seemed like while you were at Guantanamo. But around the world, it looked very, very different, and that kind of set, I think, the tone for, for, for future coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then, uh, over the many, many trips I've taken there uh, in the intervening years, uh, on one level, things always change. There's a new set of rules every time you go there that has some kind of arbitrary, uh, uh, annoying impact on the life of a reporter about, like, you know, which, uh, you know, who, whether you're allowed to go jogging unescorted, you know, things like that uh, or not. Um, and the setup there went from, uh, it, it has become very routinized for a, you know, certainly for, for me as a visitor and, and almost banal, uh, there's, uh, uh, you know, by all accounts, there's no abuse going on in the sense of prisoners being, uh, you know, beaten or subjected to any kind of, uh, you know, horrific uh, treatment. But it is a, a, a place of indefinite uh, detention with very strict military rules for the for the for the detainees, um, and uh, a military that is, I would, you know, my guess for the people who are there as the uh, as the jailers, uh, you know, they're. They, you know, they they are they are sort of stuck in the middle. I mean, I mean, many of them that I've spoke to there aren't that uh, they just aren't that psyched about this mission. But you know, in any job, and particularly if in, in the military, uh, you know, you you do what you're told and you carry out your your mission, and 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 whether it's a wise or unwise mission is someone else's job to decide. And here you have people carrying out this mission. And essentially, you've got a U.S. government that is paralyzed on it and can't decide whether it's, uh, you know, you have the president saying it's a bad mission, and yet they carry it out anyway. You have Congress speaking in, in, in multiple minds about what it wants done there. Uh, so uh, it's, it is a very, very strange place. It's very unlike, uh, you know, because of the, the, the uncertainty that surrounds everything, uh, very unlike, you know, any place in the United States. And yet, it's also much like the United States because there's a subway and a McDonald's and mm-hmm. a shopping mall and a, and a, uh, a ceramics uh, studio and a yacht club and um, uh, outdoor movie theater. Well, I guess that's not. We don't have those that so much anymore in America. But there's an outdoor movie theater. There's, you know, it's 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 a it's a place of of quite uh, quite striking uh, uh, contrast. Yeah. Well, if you had to hazard a guess as, as to how this will all re- resolve or or not, what would that look like? The funny thing is, is that the 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 my my best guess is that it continues in this in this strange limbo. Uh, it's it's like the Flying Dutchman. It just sails forever without anyone at the helm. It's just continuing forward with people having kind of you know micro level missions to carry out that they try to carry out for the most part uh, you know uh, well uh, down there. But there's no one steering the ship or plotting a course or, or having any kind of uh, 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 destination in, in mind. Uh, the way the military commissions trials, which is the focus of the terror courts, uh, the way those are going, it will be years and years before there is resolution in the 9-11 trial or the uh, accused uh, uh, um, mastermind of the attack on the USS Cole a warship in, in Yemen in 2000. Those are the the only only cases that are currently in before a military commission, and it will it, it will be years before you get anywhere because mm-hmm. even if those trials begin next year, as the prosecution hopes, uh, unclear to me how long they will last. There are at least two automatic levels of appeal, and there's a potential appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, there's then. 
you know, a couple dozen other people who might be tried. So unless someone actively comes in to stop or change that policy, it will just continue uh, on its own. And I don't see anyone stepping up to, to, to stop it. And same way with detentions, unless the president really is willing to uh, say this matters and he's going to have a, 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 a kind of uh, uh, reaches an accord with Congress or is willing to undertake a confrontation with Congress to to get uh, the you know, elected branches of government uh, in, in alignment about how to, how to you know, end, end this, this story. Mm. Well, the way you, you, you paint it, it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, you know, if, if horrible microcosm by which we, you know, judge our own culture by and large and the ways that we differ and, and, and look similar. But I, I trust you'll, you'll still be on the case. You'll be watching what, what goes on for The Wall Street Journal. I have been so far, and I, I expect to. It, you know, there, in some ways, it does sort of draw you in, and and uh, uh, the, you know, it's it's uh, it's 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 unlike covering anything else. So it's actually, you know, I, I retained uh, uh, this part of the, the Guantanamo portfolio when I went on to cover the, the Supreme Court starting in 2005. Uh, and occasionally, those two worlds do intersect with the, with the case at the Supreme Court. But I, I certainly intend to keep uh, covering it and to uh, keep. Uh, uh, you know, hoping to uh, you know update readers. Perhaps there'll be uh, second and third and fourth and and then and, and, uh, further editions of, of the terror courts uh, <laughs> in the decades <laughs> to come yeah, uh, if things continue uh, as they are now. Well, thank you, Jess Braven, author of the Terror Courts, Rough Justice at Guantanamo Bay, for joining us on the podcast. John, thanks for having me at the podcast, and thank you even more for publishing my book. It's a pleasure.